are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have a special guest. His name is Michael Carter, and he got a master's degree in genocide and Holocaust studies at Kane University in New Jersey. Hello, Michael. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming. So um, let's get started. Like, what does the UN Convention on Genocide say? Well, okay. Well, we can go back a little bit before then. Because the term genocide originated in 1944, before the Second World War was even over, from a Polish lawyer named Raphael Lemkin, who a good number of his family, he was a Polish Jew, a good portion of his family did not survive the Holocaust. And he put together a publication, again, in 1944, a publication called Axis Rule in Occupied Europe, in which... Wait, he, Axis for Occupied Europe? Axis Rule Axis in Occupied Rule Europe. in Occupied Europe. Okay. Yes. And that laid out, among other things, it was his legal description of the various atrocities and techniques and whatnot of the Nazi occupation of, you know, Europe. And in one particular chapter, he coined the term genocide. That's the first time the term has ever been used, coined in 1944. And he laid out, and what it basically is by his definition is, I'm quoting him now, it is intended rather to signify a coordinated plan of different actions aiming at the destruction of essential foundations of the life of national groups. I can go on, but what it essentially is, it's the targeting of groups as a collective. Using the Jewish example, Jews weren't killed individually. They were killed because they were Jews. And he outlined eight techniques that he broke down to be the techniques of genocide, which included political, which would later be sort of dissected from genocide and sort of become politicized. Because oh, okay. Hold on. So, so can you tell us what political gen- he meant by political genocide okay. first? What I was saying was what we would consider politicized today, the government targeting of particular political groups. This would fall under Soviet purges. Or Black Panthers. Well, what would you take about Black Panthers? The the the, the United States going think, after the Black Panthers? Yeah, they were targeted for being black liberationists. Well, I don't know if I'd say that the United States government had a policy of, of genocide. I know, pol- but, okay, so in that case, maybe I don't understand what the term political... Okay, well, they, okay so skipping ahead a little bit. So he had these eight techniques, and I'll go through the other ones. Mm-hmm. But some of them didn't make their way into the convention political genocide being one of them that was ditched, and it was revived later as a different term, which was politicized, which was the targeting of political groups. So usually, nowadays, we don't associate the murder of political groups as genocide. Okay. And the next technique we have was social, which was the attack of the actual legal system itself. One example you see numerous times in historical cases of genocide is sort of a parallel or an alternative legal system. There are different rules for the perpetrator class as there are the victim class of genocide. Okay. Then you have cultural genocide, which is, you know, one of the more common... That's like um, Indian boarding schools and forced assimilation, right? Exactly. Um, and you see the same thing going on now if you want to talk about the how what China is doing to its 
Muslim minority as we speak. So this is not something that goes away. And the next technique he described was economic genocide, which was the literal attacking the economic foundation of a people, which was you were literally taking sort of their wealth out from underneath them, leaving them with pretty much nothing. And this is what we saw going to the original Holocaust example, when you have the literal theft of wealth. The idea of after the town or village would murder its Jews of going up and trying to rip up the floorboards to find gold underneath the floorboards. Um, then you had biological genocide, which was the goal of depopulation, the literal goal of depopulating the group by attacking their birth rate. Like mass sterilizations. Exactly. And it's actually one of the more misunderstood or how you say not taught. Mm-hmm. Because it's very hard when we think of genocide, because we think of genocide in the paradigm of usually the Holocaust mm-hmm. or, you know, the Rwanda, the sort of, I don't want to call them cliches, but the most infamous, prominent ones that are taught in school or in our contemporary memory, they are, they're usually done by bullets. It's a mass killing. Or gas. or Yes, yes. But it's, it's the literal murder. We usually don't conceptualize a genocide without killing, a genocide by a scalpel, if you will. Okay. Which when we go furthermore and talk about Puerto Rico, which I know you're interested in, I'll be talking about the biological aspect of that. Then physical genocide, that's where he described your starvation, your diseases like the, the typhoid and whatnot in the, in the ghettos and... of, during the Holocaust, and the actual mass killing itself. Genocidal massacres in any shape or form would be an example of the physical technique of genocide. And then he categorized religious genocide, which would be attack on the religious institutions themselves. Mm-hmm. So go, returning to the most common Holocaust example, well, if murdering Jews for Jews, is, physically murdering them is considered physical genocide, then the destruction of their synagogue, the destruction, you know, would be the religious, the religious assault. And then last, he had moral which, having reread it again before you know, sitting down with you today, it was still a little vague, but he uses the term moral debasement. And he uses the example that, kind of, he was talking about Germany when he wrote this, of how Germany would urge those in their occupied territories to drink more, for example, to engage in behaviors that sort of undermine the moral foundation of a society. And you know, if you want to think of an American example, you have the idea of introducing alcohol to the Native American population to a very similar end. And, you know, that's my rambling description of the eight techniques of genocide. Okay, so, like, what made it to the UN conventions? Okay, so what made it into the UN convention is pretty much, to break it down, mass killings, the theft of children, it was more of the actual physical aspect. It was the, what you saw that fell more neatly into the post-war Holocaust paradigm. Ah, and I guess Lemkin described it as thieves, something about thieves drooling the table. Oh, that wasn't Lemkin. That was um, University of Hawaii professor, Dr. David Stannard, who's most famous for writing what I think is one of the most important books on genocide in the Americas. He wrote a book called American Holocaust. Oh, I've read that book. It's it's a great book. I would say if your audience has even the most basic banal interest in American history, let alone genocide studies, let alone get American Holocaust. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty thick book. Yeah, and it's very graphic because you don't realize 
like a, like most of the victims aren't alive to talk about what happened. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these records is like directly from the U.S. military records. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an incredible piece of scholarship and it recounts a history that in many cases has slipped through the cracks. And I'm sure we'll be bringing up more about what else has slipped through the cracks of American memory as we continue this conversation. Uh, oh, yeah. I actually have it on my Kindle right now, <laughs> um, uh, the but American Holocaust. To get to the, what you were quoting, he spoke at Vanderbilt University on October 30th, 2008. He was giving a talk. I don't remember the exact anniversary, but it was one of the anniversary of his book. I want to say 30th, but I have a feeling that's wrong, where he said that the post-war countries, the Allied powers, sitting down in the United Nations after the war and sort of taking Lemkin's concept and codifying it into international law in the UN Genocide Convention was the equivalent of thieves sitting down and writing the law. And that makes sense because, for example, Belgium was involved in horrific stuff in Congo. France is still exploiting Africa. The British, like, engineered a mass starvation in India at the same time that they were fighting Hitler. So, um, So basically he's saying that these allied powers wrote the genocide to exclude their behavior. Yes, exactly. It's the fact that, you know, all these colonial imperial powers in 1945, well, actually it was about 1946, 1947, but for the, you know what I mean, sitting down and going, okay, we are now the arbiters of international justice when you have, you know, only so many decades before. Or like days before in the exactly, British case. Yeah. You, well, the Soviet Union. You want to talk about the Soviet uh, Union well, being a... Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, with the, I'm very familiar with the British case. Like, literally, it was yeah. probably like days before, like with the yeah. Ma- yeah. You're talking, well, you're talking specifically about the Bangle found. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was, oof. There is, this might be a bit hyperbolic, but if there's a country that's probably racked up the most genocide in human history, it was probably the British Empire. I, I wouldn't. Uh, I, I wouldn't. I'd pro- I wouldn't bet against that. I, I wouldn't either. So, given that foundation, I guess there's. Two issues. Some people would say if you expand genocide to all these instances, you're trivializing it. Mm-hmm. What would Lemkin or you would say about that? Okay. Actually, that's leading into one of my favorite points to make. Raphael Lemkin died prematurely, most very poor, very alone, very stressed out with a lot of unfinished work. Basically, his urge, his post-war urge to codify his term genocide into international law basically killed him. It's not a trend, but you see a couple of instances when you go genocide studies, you see people that have literally driven themselves to the breaking point. Um, Real side note, I'll get back to the question, but the late author Iris Chang wrote a book called The Rape of Nanjing, which which is the definitive book on the Japanese sacking and mass rape and mass killing in Nanjing, China during the Second World War, but before everyone else got involved and everyone started to care. And she, not that long after, while working on her, I think she, I believe she wrote her second book and then committed suicide because she was bearing the weight of these survivor stories. So there's something almost toxic about bringing all this into yourself. So Lemkin died with a great deal of unpublished work. And one of his works was what he was calling the history of genocide. And it was a series of outlines. And there's 
because we don't know. Some people think maybe he wrote them. There's another theory that maybe he had a grad student write them, you know. But these outlines basically track case studies of genocide throughout history. And the oldest one goes back to the crusade against the Cathars. Well, what, what year would that be? Oh, I am terrible at medieval history. I want to say, oh, no. Like, is it like around the 1300s? Well, it was in the middle of the crusade. I want, I want to say 1400s. Okay, 1400s. That, that's good enough. Yeah, we're talking about, to make up for the lack of a date, the, the papacy and the various Catholic rulers, particularly the French, have decided that a quote-unquote heresy that was occurring in southern France, they called the Cathars, who had a more dualistic view of Christianity, believing that there was a, you know, a good God and a bad God and, you know, that kind of stuff, this stuff that wouldn't fly with the Roman Catholic Church, and basically they slaughtered them all. He went that far back. So to answer your question, it's like, well, what happens when we extend out this far? And that's an argument that a lot of people have made. There's a lot of scholars that make that argument. There's a lot of scholars that don't go past the Holocaust, or rather, don't go past, I mean, back, past Armenia. They say, well, this is a 20th century problem, and, well, no, it's a historic problem. So, and I would say, use Lemkin's own words. Use his own view of the matter. Use the, what I would call the Lemkinian definition, which I partially read to you earlier. It's, don't look at it in terms of, well, if we add this to the list, then that d- deteriorates the term. Well, no. We're just, we have to call things as we see it. Now, there are people, there's always debate. There's one of the consequences of Lemkin's early death is that we didn't have time, he didn't have time, rather, to codify a lot of his ideas. So a lot of it was left open for scholars to interpret. So there are scholars that don't believe what occurred in Bosnia was genocide. I'm not one of those scholars. I believe there was a Bosnian genocide. There are people that don't believe Cambodia was a genocide because it was Cambodians against Cambodians. But it was seven million. (laughs) Exactly. One example of a, I believe they're a Russian scholar whose name, of course, eludes me, but they wrote a book called Stalin's Genocide, and they said, you know what? The destruction of the Kulaks in the Soviet Union, which is generally considered to be a politicide, Mm -hmm. they make the argument that's a genocide. They go back to the Lemkinian definition and just remerge politicide back in there. Okay, so basically, I guess the point is it happens in shocking frequency in human history. It's like... Yeah, to sort of sum it all up, I believe it's a, hist- it's a human phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It's a historic phenomenon. I believe there could be examples of genocide going as far back as the Bronze Age. Have there been, like, bonobos or chimpanzees engaging in genocide? Well, that's actually an interesting thing. I wouldn't say that. I would, I would limit genocide to humans, obviously. Okay. But it is possible. Now, I have not done enough reading on this, and it's one of the things that I want to do when I have more time and effort. But one of the things I've considered is that genocide is a problem that we can't really rid ourselves with, a problem from hell, if you want to use Samantha Power's terminology. It's a problem we're stuck with. But we can prevent it. We can intervene and stop it. But I don't know if it's sort of a silver bullet cure because it has to do with hate and othering, and there's always going to be that kind of view. And I think one of the reasons is this might be an evolutionary leftover. This might be baggage of ours, that this is how we're using it. Yeah, it's like, yeah. I'm a little bit out of my wheelhouse now, but that's sort of... Okay, so it's like a baggage that just ends up like, but now we have weapons of mass destruction, and so now the baggage can kind of, I guess, go crazy. 
I would argue it is probably a lot easier to commit a genocide now. <laughs> um, no, and that, I mean, that's unfortunate. I mean, obviously. No, no one is pro-genocide unless you're committing one. But right now, if I would be so bold, I'd say there's four or going more. on right now. Or probably more. Like, in theory, like the way Trump is separating the children from the parents and not, I mean, that qualifies. Yeah, that's, well, that's, well, the four I'd go with before I, I address the child separation issue with President Trump is the four that were going on now, I would say, is the Yemeni conflict, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. And I believe that the Saudi uh, war of annihilation in Yemen is has been genocidal since the blockade, if not earlier. Oh, yeah, and they're only targeting the Shias and the Houthis. Yes. I would say, without a doubt, I, I mentioned it before, the Chinese mm-hmm. interning their Muslim population, the Uyghurs, Myanmar. Absolutely, get, the Rohingya. And I believe we could be getting to the point where well, I would say, you know, ISIS was recently defeated. Yeah. But three days ago, I would have included them as well. And it is possible, unfortunately, that if we have that, we've already hit that point in Brazil when it comes to what that far-right administration in Brazil is going to be doing to the Amazon. Forget the ecological, environmental consequences, but there are tribes, uncontacted tribes in the Amazon that only have a handful of members. Like one logging crew... Forget disease. Just one logging crew with guns could wipe out an entire people. People we've never even know could already be lost. That's true. And another thing is that a few months back, this American tourist went to this island in India, like the Andaman Islands. And, I mean, he got killed. But the thing is that, like, everyone in India was, like, saying that these people don't have the same immunity to germs that the rest of the world does. So one contact can actually end up wiping the whole ethnic group out. Exactly. And how many uncontacted tribes are there in Brazil? I don't know. There's a great organization that I'll plug because I've gotten friendly with its CEO on Twitter recently. It's Mm survival.org. It's the best resource you can find for indigenous rights. Not just in the Amazon, in, in Africa, in various. These are the guys that are on the ground saying that we have to protect these people from whether it be disease or whether it be, you know, logging or because that's the guys you got to look for. I'm not the person that should that, but survival.org, read their stuff, read their articles, follow them on Twitter. I don't know how many exact uncontacted tribes there are, but I will say that the risk to those uncontacted tribes and the contacted tribes and the people that are actually there that we know about has probably never been higher. That's true. We actually did two episodes on Brazil. And if the audience goes back to the one with Wendy Muse, we played this clip where Bolsonaro openly says that we're not going to give them one more centimeter of land and we're going to take our guns to stop yeah. that or something like he. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's already started happening. This is a, a pattern that's been going on and. South America and various countries far before the global resurgence of the far right. But there has been recently an escalation in the assassination of indigenous leaders, especially those that are speaking out for not only indigenous rights, but environmental rights. Mm -hmm. And even more recently, there has been instances where gunmen have attacked villages. In Brazil? Yeah, in Brazil. Uh, There's recent cases of planes flying over settlements and dumping herbicide as basically, like, we're talking like Vietnam-style chemical warfare against 
I think I believe they're small biplanes, but like it's it's what it's, they, it's, the idea is to starve them out. Yeah, or you know, because that they don't. They, we've reached that point. That's why I said like we could already be there. That's one of the scariest things about the Amazon. These these people in the Amazon is because usually, unfortunately, genocides begin and then they occur and they continue to occur because oh, Darfur. You want to yeah, talk about Darfur. ongoing genocide? Darfur has been going on since the Bush administration and it is still not technically ended. Yeah. So you want to talk about, so, you know, there might be five, six going on. Or, I mean, yeah, there's a case. Yeah, there's, a, there's way too many genocides on the force. But, like, the idea that when it comes to the Amazon, a genocide might be committed and, you know, done with in a day. And we might not hear about it for years. Because um, some of the uncontacted tribes are so small and we, the, we, we don't have a record of anything about them. If, like, just to go with the chemical warfare instance, and I'm just saying a hypothetical here, because it's like, if that's a village of 14 people, and you spray everyone in that village with, I guess, something like the equivalent of Roundup, uh-huh. which is a carcinogen, you've wiped out that entire village. That might be the last population of a people. That might be a significant chunk of a people. Wow. So Now you've made Bolsonaro much scarier for me than, like, I, I, I was already scared, but now it's like my, I'm like, wow. Yeah. So, can we talk a little bit about eugenics and Puerto Rico? Sure. Um, well, can I go ahead? If you can give me the, if can I set up the entire backstory? Yeah, absolutely. Of Puerto, cool. Puerto Rico, and the long and short of it, is the oldest colony in the Western Hemisphere. It's a island that was basically conquered by Imperial Spain, and to this day has never been liberated. Now it's the Commonwealth, but you know it's what I mean. It's, it's an American colony still. It's just, you changed the word. But, so basically, I want to go back to, before we get to Puerto Rico, well, but Puerto Rico was taken over as a direct result of the Spanish-American War, which began on February 15th, 1898. And, well, basically, everyone sort of knows the story, if you know the history books, is we didn't want to get involved in what was essentially a Cuban revolt against Imperial Spain. And the USS Maine exploded, and this was a, an opportunity for the United States to get involved. And the United States, you know, they fought the war against Spain, and they won. But here's the thing. The United States joined the war with the stated goal that they were going to help the Cuban people, and, you know, by extension, the Philippines, et cetera, remove the imperial yoke of Spain from their shoulders. But, well, it turns out when the war ended, we were just switching, you know, one empire for another. So we took Cuba, we took the Philippines, and then we took Puerto Rico and Guam, basically, literally a spoil of the war. I don't have the exact quote with me, but the language was basically that we took those two territories to make up for our losses in the war. Oh, my God. So Puerto Rico and Guam were literally taken as spoil of the war. And there was no, and when the Treaty of Paris was signed in August of 1898, there was no Puerto Rican there. None of these people were there to determine their own fate. So essentially, during the war, you know, going back a little bit, the first U.S. troops landed on the shores of Puerto Rico in July that year, and they've never left. (laughs) There's a great book if you want to talk about the various colonial, imperial, and 
even fascist policies that were put up against Puerto Rico throughout its history in the 20th century. Um, there's a great book written by former UN State Assemblyman uh, Nelson Dennis called War Against All Puerto Ricans. And War Against All Puerto Ricans, the title comes from a quote amid one of the various uh, nationalist struggles on the island where the police chief of the entire island swore that there would be a war to the death against all Puerto Ricans. That's a, that's a dead quote. E. Francis Riggs. But, okay, so we take the island at the end of the Spanish-American War. And I'll give you a quick cliff note of the stuff that happened next. Within a year, I believe a year later, one of the largest hurricanes on record in the Caribbean hits that island, wipes out the entire island, obliterates its coffee crop. Its main cash crop is annihilated. This is one of the unfortunate things when history repeats itself. But when the hurricane hit Puerto Rico, one of the things the United States did at the time with outlaw the Spanish peso, which was the main currency in Puerto Rico, which at the time had equal value to the U.S. dollar, roughly speaking. And they got rid of it, which devalued it 30%. 40%. So imagine tomorrow you find out that 40% of your savings, 40% of your wealth, whatever assets you have, 40% of it is gone. That's what occurred on Puerto Rico after a hurricane. Oh, my. So, and then what happened at the, soon enough, because the coffee crop was annihilated, and all these farmers were in debt and various processes. So banks and major corporations started moving in. So then the majority of that farmland became owned by basically farming syndicates, and most of it became sugar. The first governor, the first American governor of Puerto Rico, set up the sugar industry, quit, and became ahead of what is now Domino Sugar. Wow. Hello, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be going back for the second half of this interview after this important message. We have switched over to Substack. Please become a subscriber by going to historically.substack.com. That's H-I-S-T-O-R-I-C-L-Y dot substack dot com. And now back to the show. This is a lot like the shock doctrine and disaster capitalism. Yes. That sounds exactly like disaster that's, capitalism. Well, yes, that's, the, um, that's exactly it. That's the historic example. And it gets worse because okay. you start to see this facilitated continuum. So... Jumping a bit ahead, because now we're going into the 20th century. In 1947, an attempt to industrialize the island, to make it a profit center for the mainland, they launched what was called Operation Bootstrap. And Operation Bootstrap basically turned Puerto Rico into a tax-free haven. Like, this is the route from why Puerto Rico has so many pharmaceutical companies down there now. It's the root of this sort of factory industrialness. So, uh, but as a result, because you had all this farmland now, you have this industrialization. As a result, from 1951 to 1960, the rate of employment for Puerto Ricans dropped by 60,000 people. So now 60,000 people who are working 60, had lost their jobs. Yes, yeah, 60,000 people who were in the workforce over those nine years were removed from the workforce. Wow. And additionally... 450,000 people left the island. Mm -hmm. The unemployment rose, and we'll see how this connects to the eugenics in a second. 
is they started to label the unemployed population as, quote-unquote, the excess population. This is the U.S. government label. This is the U.S. This is the U.S. government. Oh, my. So here's another side point, Wilker. Most of the people that were, because they would say, I'll get into this a little bit because I'll get in. It, the term excess population, they're talking about the island being overpopulated. There's too many people on the island, too many Puerto Ricans, et cetera, et cetera. But here's the sort of cruel joke that's in that. Most of the people that were leaving Puerto Rico were arriving in Manhattan, a smaller island with a population density over 134 times that of Puerto Rico. It wasn't, that, about, it wasn't about, about population. It was about Puerto Ricans. So this gets to the eugenics point. But first, we should probably define eugenics in a way that kind of like what I defined, genocide. And I'm going to use my favorite definition, which is the definition that is used by a former professor of mine from Kane University, Dr. Brian Regal. He is a historian. He's an associate professor of the history of science. He's a historian of science. And his exact definition is... Eugenics is the idea that a carefully controlled program of human breeding can improve society. Eugenic belief presupposes that there are superior and inferior ethnic groups. It also holds that both its physical and metaphysical characteristics of an individual or race are determined by the quality and the character of their ancestry. And that's from, he wrote uh, many years ago, a encyclopedia called a Pseudoscience, a Critical Encyclopedia. And so, so that eugenics is a 19th century philosophy. It's kind of a bastard cousin of Darwinian evolution. If I remember correctly, it was Darwin's cousin that was one of the first people that started to get this ball moving. And what I believe, and this is the case that I made when I wrote the graduate thesis on this topic, and I stand by it, is that eugenics in and of itself is a genocidal ideology. And I said it because when you start defining things in that term, you basically have carte blanche to decide unilaterally who is worthy, who deserves to live, who has a birthright. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if they're you know, disabled or if they're, you know, et cetera, et cetera, whatever specific eugenic sort of trait you want to do, they can just do it because they'll justify it. Mm-hmm. And that sort of collided in the 20th century, especially talking about Puerto Rico, but elsewhere, and we'll get to that as I go on, with an 18th century concept of overpopulation, specifically Malthusian overpopulation, which was named for Thomas R. Malthus, who was a 18th century scholar and a cleric, and he is most famous for, to summarize, was he believed that population would grow so rapidly specifically that it would double every 25 years to the point where there literally would not be enough food and resources for the human race to survive. So he didn't foresee that we'd get new ways to grow food. Yeah. So he felt that overpopulation was a problem. This was picked up. Well, I mean, it was always existing. But you see it come back around in the eugenic circles around this time. And you see how that fits into the overpopulation discourse of Puerto Rico. And this is where this gets, talking about this topic, gets a little more controversial. Because Puerto Rico was sort of the staging ground 
for a population control enterprise, if you will, sort of beating around the bush here. But Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist. Now, that doesn't change any of the positive, undeniably important aspects of the sexual revolution. So I want to say, when I'm talking about Sanger, I'm not making a sort of Ben Carson argument of black genocide. I'm making a argument that is specifically at the eugenic roots of her viewpoint. Yep, and her viewpoint is not the same as Planned Parenthood or abortion yes. act, right? Yes. Like, those are totally different. So, well, as you sort of go through this, unfortunately, like, the origins of Planned Parenthood have this, and stays with this organization for a good part of the 20th century, but it's no longer that case. So any case you can make historically against Sanger and her compatriots in, the, in Planned Parenthood coming out in the 20th century into the 50s and whatnot, you cannot make that case for now. So I would not say, and no one should say this because it's a foolish, idiotic argument, that Planned Parenthood is a eugenicist organization because it's not. You know, it's a women's health organization, it's a reproductive health organization that should not be defunded by the government, for example. But Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist, and she was very clear about this. This is not hidden information. She wrote in a New York Times article in the 20s talking about, you know, that the goal, that she would, that her goal was the release and cultivation of better racial elements in our society and the gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extirpation of defective stocks, those human weeds which threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. Yeah, and then she wrote a book three years before that, that in her view, birth control is nothing more or less than the facilitation of the process of weeding out the unfit, of preventing the birth of defectives or those that will be become defective. Now, I said everything I already said. So what I'm saying is she built a sort of empire in Puerto Rico. Because Puerto Rico was not under the jurisdiction of the Comstock laws, which were the, you know, speaking very generally, the laws that banned contraceptives in the United States and banned discussing them or mail or talking about them in the mail. So Puerto Rico sort of became a laboratory for the origins of what would become the sexual revolution. And this was not just her. There was a, one of her fellow travelers, if you will, in the eugenicist movement, wrote an article in Birth Control Review in 1932. His name was Theodore Schroeder. And he was convinced that the Puerto Ricans, and this is a view shared by a lot of people at the time, that the Puerto Ricans were a backward, savage ignorant, barbaric people, and that eventually they'd run out of food because there's too many of them, and then they'll pillage like barbarians, and, well, we'd have to send the army in to deal with barbarians. And his exact quote is, there will be, of course, American soldiers and machine guns to reduce the population. Perhaps this is the best method of solving the problem. But if the time for machine guns should ever come where will the major responsibility lie? So not only do we have this man in the early 30s saying that it would be perfectly acceptable for the U.S. Army to massacre Puerto Ricans, 
But he'd say, if that was to happen, it would be the Puerto Ricans' fault. Wow. So you see how, you know, how eugenics has, this sort of ideology has been exported mm-hmm. from the mainland into the Puerto Rican context. Mm-hmm. But there was also some other things that were going on, and that's human experimentation. And there's two notable examples, two big ones. And the first one is a man named Dr. Cornelius Rhodes. And Cornelius Rhodes is now an interesting figure. In 1931, he was recruited into the Rockefeller Anemia Commission. And they sent him down to San Juan to deal with amenia and the hookworm parasite. Anemia. Anemia. What did I say, amenia? Yeah. This is what happens when you think way too much about genocide. <laughs> but to deal with hookworm. And what he basically decided was that because of where he was, it didn't really matter what he did. He was more interested in much of the same vein as the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Uh-huh. He was more interested in what the disease did. Oh. So he didn't treat patients. But they had a cure for hookworm and anemia. Um, then. Yeah. He could have made a considerable effort okay. and decided not to. He infected people. He ignored them. He described them in one instance as being his experimental animals. Oh, my God. You want to talk about literal dehumanization. And what's the most notorious thing about Cornelius Rhodes is a letter that he wrote on February 10th, 1931. And if I remember the story off the top of my head, apparently something happened. I think his car got vandalized or something. Something happened. So he wrote a letter to a colleague of his named Fred Stewart, who at the time was at the New York Cancer Hospital, which has now become Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Mm-hmm. And he wrote this letter, which I'll read to you the excerpt that is. He said that the Puerto Ricans are beyond a doubt the dirtiest, laziest, most degenerate, and thievish race of men ever inhabiting the sphere. What the island needs is not public health work, but a tidal wave or something to totally exterminate the population. It might then be livable. I have done my best to further the process of extermination by killing off eight. He killed eight of his own patients and transplanting cancer into several more. The latter has not resulted in any fatalities so far. The matter of considering for the patient's welfare plays no role here. In fact, all the physicians take delight in the abuse and torture of the unfortunate subjects. This sounds a lot like Dr. Mengele. Exactly. Literally. And... Right down to, like, the dehumanizing terminology. I would associate it with, there's a, an, a similar group that occurred in Imperial Japan called Unit 731. That was their biological, chemical warfare, human experimentation branch within their armed forces. And they called the victims in which they experimented on human logs. It's that same kind of dehumanization. And so this scandal broke because the letter was discovered. He fled the island. He was made director of the Memorial Hospital, which is now Sloan Kettering. Oh, Lord. Um, when the Second World War broke out, he became a colonel and was made the chief of medicine for their chemical warfare division. Oh, my. And then, which means he had a great deal of, he would have access to mustard gas and all the stuff to see how that worked. 
Oh, and then he went on to become one of the fundamental founding fathers of chemotherapy. Oh. So it's a complicated legacy. Yeah. Uh, and for a long time, his dual legacy wasn't addressed, but it has pretty much been addressed since. But the idea that, you know, it's just look at these people and go, you know, not only am I going to watch them die, but I hope that their entire people are exterminated. So that was the more infamous uh, instance of human experimentation in the 30s. In Puerto Rico. Yeah. And the next case is smaller scale, but in a way it ties in more with what I was talking about with uh, the population control. Because Rhodes isn't part of necessarily the population control story. He's just this unspeakably evil element that's in there as well that shouldn't be ignored. So in the 1950s, there were two doctors who were working the founding fathers of the birth control pill, which, again, revolutionary technology named Dr. John Rock and Gregory Pincus. The original sort of prototypes, if you will, of the birth control pill were tested out on Puerto Rican women without their consent and without properly explaining to many of them how to take it and when to take it, that they, have to, that they should be taking it with food, you know, et cetera. There was no informed consent. And there were cases, and there's a great documentary on this whole topic, the whole sterilization, you know, population control topic called La Operacion. And they go in, and part of it goes into this, of these women who were saying, like, nurses showed up at our doors and saying, you know, you take this and you won't have kids. But that was the extent of the explanation. And these two doctors really didn't care about the side effects their care, kind of in the same way as Rhodes, does it work? Because they weren't worried about Puerto Rico. They wanted to make sure they could get this working so they can get it to the mainland. That was their goal. This was just a laboratory. This was the Petri dish. Um, so those are the two real issues of human experimentation. One, again, as I said, is a sort of horrendous outlier. And then the other one ties more into the population control that we were talking about. So can you talk about the population, like what they did with the forced sterilization? Yes. Okay. There was a lot of stuff that went into this. And I'll get into the government because I I finished my thesis and I got it graded and and whatnot and I graduated. But there's still holes in it. So which is just a side effect of, you know, you only have so much time in the National Archives. But basically the sterilization effort, the push for these women was driven economically, because uh, I said Operation Bootstrap set these factories, these products, over companies, these textile mills, et cetera. And a lot of these places required the women to be sterilized. So before they got hired, they said, you need to be sterilized. Yes, because but, they... Wait, sterilized as in permanently and not like on birth control. Yes, they would, um, they would have to have hysterectomies. Oh, my God. Because they did not want to pay for... Maternally, when they didn't want to have a woman be out of the workforce for months at a time. So it was not uncommon for the workplaces and these clinics to be in literal cooperation. And so that was a big thing. There was also a lot of propaganda, literal school textbooks that were given to children, particularly young girls, had pictures of, you know, single-family houses with white picket fences and a mother and father and two kids and saying things along the lines of a small family means progress. Wow. So literally, 
rewriting the culture mm-hmm. of Puerto Rico itself to be better suited for the mainland capitalists who are running these, these factories and these mills. But basically, by the 60s, one-third of all mothers on Puerto Rico, on, on the island of Puerto all Rico. All mothers or all women? All mothers. Because, you know, if you didn't have kids. All mothers on Puerto Rico between the ages of 20 and 45 were sterilized. Wow. And I, and I believe at the time, and I believe this still holds, because there's kind of a cultural hangover of lay operation, is Puerto Rico still might have the most sterilized women per capita. And the idea was to lower the birth rate. How long, when did this program end? Officially, because there was finally pushback in the 70s when there was more pushback against uh, sterilization abuse. And one of the heroes of that, there was a couple of heroes of that, including Dr. Helena Rodriguez Tria, Mm -hmm. who she has since deceased, who was the central figure of the documentary that I was talking about. She was really one of the more outspoken people against this, she actually believed that hundreds of thousands of women over the course of these decades were subjected to coerced sterilization. And that's actually, that's an important point to make, you know, in my context about this, is there wasn't really a concept of informed consent in this situation. Some women didn't know it was permanent. Some women didn't have the reproductive health education or the anatomy education to know when the doctor went down and, you know, cut what they had to cut, they didn't know what was cut. There was, so women were literally sterilized without knowing what that necessarily meant. And there's also the economic coercion, like if you job, like, yeah. do, do you starve or do you say no kids? Yeah. So there's one particular case of a woman who... I started off my thesis with this, with this quote from the documentary, and she said that she was, went in, was sterilized, was in the uh, hospital bed, was laying down after the operation. The, sir, the doctor, would walk, the clinician walked in, put her chart on the bed and walked away. Mm-hmm. Did not a word, anything. So she read it, and he was reading it, and then she was, she was reading what they did. Like, what did they cut? And then she was saying to the documentary, I look at happy mothers and I look at women that are pregnant and I'm sad because I, that could have been me. Mm-hmm. So we subjected thousands of women to that in the, throughout the, the, the better part of the 20th century. Wow. And I, I guess for me, like learning about it from you, it was just... I had no idea how deep it went and how methodical it was. And also one quick side point, just to sort of see the obvious is one of the other things that led to as many women being sterilized was because there was that cultural aspect of their husbands refusing vasectomies. Oh. So there was that cultural... I'm not necessarily blaming... The men of Puerto Rico, but I'm saying there was that cultural element that all this propaganda sort of also had the chance of benefiting from, because the, it was the women's responsibility to make sure they didn't have kids anymore. I see. Because you know, so I want to move because this was actually being funded for the most part by these clinics, which were backed by various private organizations, the Rockefellers, the Planned Parenthood affiliates, etc. But 
That's hard to make a case of genocide. You can. You can make a genocide if you really wanted to. But you kind of need the government involved on some level, especially in the modern era. If you want to talk about colonialism, at that point you have more militias. So I don't know if you know about this. I don't know if your audience knows about this. But in 1950, there was an attempted independence revolt Mm -hmm. in Puerto Rico by the Nationalist Party. Mm -hmm. And it was put down by the U.S. Armed Forces. It is the only time in U.S. history that the U.S. Air Force bombed American citizens during peacetime. Well, it, in Philadelphia, Reagan bombed. Yeah, uh, okay. It's not the oldest time. Well, yeah, it's yeah. the second time. And the reason I bring that up is because it, sort of, it might supply more context into why these programs were accelerated. Mm-hmm. Skipping ahead to the 60s, let's talk about the government. Let's bring the government into this a little more. And we sort of see, this is where, I, cause as I said, there's sort of gaps in the, in the story here. But this is where it sort of all comes a little bit full circle. September 20th, 1967, there was a meeting at the State Department in Washington, D.C., headlined by the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Family Planning and Population Control at the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. And it was really a who's who of different population control mm-hmm. groups and, and agencies. And one of the figures that was there was a man named Dr. Reimart T. Ravenholt, mm-hmm. who at the time was the director of the federal government's Office of Population for USAID. So he was basically the guy who was responsible of looking at international population control. Um, his name sounds Germanic. Was he a... He is not a Nazi. Okay. Um, Just curious. <laughs> yeah, because of, uh, I mean, yeah. the U.S. government has brought many to work on the space programs. And yeah. So he's there. Yeah. I mean, he's a government official. He's at this meeting. And then 10 years pass. Mm-hmm. April 1977. Mm-hmm. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch publishes a report, an interview, mm-hmm. with Dr. Ravenholt. Ravenholt went out and said, the U.S. government's plan, foreign policy, was to sterilize 100 million people, which is one of the forms that was from Kissinger to President Ford, Henry Kissinger, because of course it was. <laughs> yeah. And he said he gave four reasons to use sterilization to, quote, for the, quote, for the protection of U.S. economic interests. Jesus. And I'll go through all four of them. Okay. The first one was to lower resource demands to increase standard of living in poor nations. Number two was a quote-unquote moral responsibility to American medicine to lower foreign death rates. Three, was a lowered population was required to keep a quote-unquote the normal operation of U.S. commercial interests around the world. And four to counter revolutions that would hurt the United States returning to his third point. He then goes back kind of into his third point and he explains forward, where he says that he blamed overpopulation for a series of what he called population factors, which included high and increasing levels of child abandonment, juvenile delinquency, chronic and growing unemployment and underemployment, petty thievery, organized banditry, food riots, separatist movements, 
communal massacres, revolutionary actions, and counter-revolutionary coups. I gave you a brief description of the 1950s nationalist revolt, which was a, a, well, perhaps the word revolution would be giving it a two-month credit. So in that memorandum, it listed numerous countries where there were successful birth control programs. One of them was Puerto Rico. And that's a little bit too much to be a coincidence, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. And, you know, in terms of this project, I, like, even though the thesis is finished, I have the degree, I consider this project unfinished because I think there's more documents to find. I think there's a stronger case to make. But I do think there is an arguable case that there was an attempted genocide of the Puerto Rican people in the 20th century through population control. I would not disagree with you. And knowing U.S. foreign policy and domestic policy, I think, yeah, I hope you do end up um, finding more information and you should write a book about it. That's my plan, I hope. Well, when you write a book, um, you're definitely welcome back to the show because, yeah, like this was actually like one of the few interviews where I'm left speechless. Well, thank you for coming. It's absolutely my pleasure. And I will definitely come back whenever you want me. I will accept it. Okay. Um, one thing. How do people find you on Twitter? I'm at, I, I really hate this name, but it's at Deck of Carter. At D-E-C-K of Carter. C-A-R-T-E-R. I thought it was funny when I made it. I don't think it's funny anymore. Okay. Well, thank you so much and have a nice day. Thank you. Thank you. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.